my talk is called Radical Change, Learning to be Free. Um, I use that title simply because I thought it was catchy. And um, um, you know, being radical is quite, uh, quite a nice word. It's nice to think of yourself as radical. I like to think of myself as radical anyway. So, um, but uh, I hope in the course of this talk, maybe it will be possible to challenge you in a few ways so that you could feel, yeah, I could make some radical changes or could think about making some radical changes in my own life. So um, just to give you a little bit of orientation in the talk, um, um, this is a Buddhist centre, if you hadn't noticed. Right? You're in the Manchester Buddhist Centre. It's a, a wonderful place, but uh, it's not just a building. It's, it's a sort of, the building is sort of incidental, really. It's what goes on in the building that's really important. In fact, sometimes when you come into the building and there's not much going on, you can appreciate the architecture. Sometimes of the year you come into the building, it's freezing cold, and um, you sort of want to go home again. But uh, what is warm and lovely about the, the Buddhist Centre is that um, it's very friendly. And I have the, um, um, the joy of working here in the building. I run a small business together with a few other people upstairs. And they're called Breathworks, and I, I love coming to the centre. It's very enjoyable to work. The only difficulty is it's difficult doing any work sometimes because there's just so many people who want to sort of talk to you and meet up with you. Now, you might be wondering what this has got to do with my talk, but actually it does fit in with my talk, and I'll come to that a little bit later. Now, when people come to the Buddhist centre, um, well, I can't quite see you around there, but hi. Uh, when people come to the Buddhist Centre, um, you could say what we're doing and what we try to do is to invite you to participate in a journey. Okay? So um, that's what the Buddhist Centre here is here for, if you like, is to provide a journey that um, we can all set out on and uh, move towards... Or I don't know if we ever complete this journey, but uh, it, um, it goes in a sort of straight line in a way. So I've got a flip chart here. I probably won't be able to see it. It's quite simple. I'm drawing a straight line. Okay? And I'm drawing a spot here. And um, last time I drew a straight line, it went down. Okay? So you notice it deliberately went off the board. Did you notice that? That wasn't me not stopping. That was me deliberately going off to the end of the board. But it has a starting point, and probably the starting point had a previous starting point. But this starting point is very important because it's the place that you are at this moment. Now, I don't mean sitting on this chair um, in, in the Buddhist sense. I actually mean where you are in your life, you know, where you are, what you are, what you do, um, and this is just it. This is the reality. You might want to be different, but you're not. You're just you. And uh, that's quite a challenging thing to actually come to terms with, isn't it? You, know, you might not even like you. And, um, but, well, that's not a great place to start, really. You probably are going to have to start, like, coming to terms with the fact, well, there you are, you know, you're just, um, you know, some of us may feel a little bit like a rat that the cat's dragged in, you know, sort of a bit all ragged and, um, you know, discombobulated and not quite sure who we are and things. Um, but that's it, that's reality. That's a challenging thing, just to accept who you are. And um, 
you're all wonderful. And that should be the message that you're, you're giving yourself. Because in a way, if you don't think of yourself as being, if not wonderful, at least capable of being wonderful, um, you won't be able to make this journey. And if you're th- capable of thinking of yourself as wonderful, you must be wonderful. <laughs> because that's a pretty amazing thing to actually feel that you could change. If you feel you can't change, or you could only become worse, um, which is a change in itself, um, you're probably not going to make much sense of this talk. But uh, Buddhism is really all about change. It's about accepting where we are and moving in a certain direction. So what is the direction we're moving in? Well, the direction we're moving in is often represented by a figure like this as the Buddha. And it's sort of, let's put it here, just I'm putting a dot on the end of this line, and I'm writing Buddha, okay, in quite small letters, because I should have done bigger, but anyway, it represents Buddha. And Buddha, what Buddha represents for us, really, is the furthest point we could imagine a human being becoming if they participated in this journey, which the Buddha called the journey of enlightenment. So it's making yourself move, it's helping yourself by participating in this journey towards what we call enlightenment. All right? So the Buddha represents the furthest imaginable point that any human being could be. And it's not to say that that point's a fixed point, and that's why the line went off the page deliberately, because we don't actually even know what it is to be Buddha, and therefore we cannot say if Buddha is the end. And anyway, it wouldn't make any sense to have an end in Buddhism. It's all about everything changing anyway. So we're going to take this journey where we become more and more on the way, if you like, to the most. I mentioned this in my previous talk, that this is a way of defining the path of, the, of Buddhism. It's the path of the becoming more and more on the way to the most. So we're here, and we now have got this idea, if you didn't have it before, because I just put it into your brains, um, that you could become the Buddha there. Or, you know, maybe that's not really realistic because at the moment you just think, well, it would be nice if I was a little bit more than what I am. So you could just, you know, think of making a few tentative steps on this path and just see how it goes. And just in case I forget, because I, I, I haven't got to my notes, but um, the Buddha did tell us that they, it's really, really important to test out things. So, you know, you shouldn't just take what I'm telling you as... As the truth, I'm not trying to com- you know, convert you in, in a belief system or anything like that. The Buddha, well, the Buddha did say this, so, you know, whether you believe this is sensible or not, but it seems pretty sensible, doesn't it? Test things out for yourself. You know? So this might sound quite good, taking this journey, but you will only know if the journey is any good if you start taking the journey. And then you think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this, is, this isn't bad. You know? And then you can take a few more steps on the journey. And, um, but there's, there's nothing to, no God or anything like that to believe in in Buddhism if you're fairly new to, to Buddhism. So that's the first thing, is the Buddha represents the furthest point that you can imagine, or anyone can imagine, on this journey of becoming more and more. Um, now the Buddha, one of his, um, this man who lived two and a half thousand years ago in India, one of the things that happened to him, he sort of saw things as they really are. That's what's usually said. That's his, his enlightenment. So what did he see? Well, he found it very, very difficult to explain what he saw. But he was able to um, explain it in a rational way through a teaching that comes with the 
um, Sanskrit name, it's an Indian language, um, Praticha Samatpada. Okay. And now, Praticha Samatpada is, is a term that is often, and I think inelegantly, translated as conditionality or co-condition or condition co-production or conditioning. It doesn't really make much sense. You might as well just stick with Praticha Samatpada because <laughs> condition co-production probably makes as much sense to you as um, Praticha Samatpada. So, you know, you might think, oh, I don't like these foreign words because I don't understand what they mean, but, you know... If I invited you to tell me what condition co-production was, uh, um, you'd probably have just as... <laughs> at least you've got the excuse it's a foreign language with uh, Pratichat Samatpada. Anyway, what does it mean, this Pratichat Samatpada, or conditionality or condition co-production? Well, it's, um, it's quite a complex um, thing to actually know, but the principle of it is fairly easy to understand, but it's very, very challenging. So the Buddha saw that everything, absolutely everything, arises in dependence upon conditions. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's not causality. It's not that this thing happens because this thing, like it's not like the billiard ball moves because the other billiard ball bumped into it, right? which is what we usually say is something like causality. You know, one thing happens, something else happens. It's more the fact that you've got two billiard balls, you've got the idea of roundness, you've got the idea of rolling, you've got the idea of perception, you've got a table for it to roll on, you've got gravity holding the ball still there. You've got a sort of um, a myriad or um, a mass of conditions that just allow this one perceivable event to happen. The, condition, the causal relationship is usually seen as that this, this happens and then that happens in, in, in consequence. What the Buddha saw is to have that situation you have to have a whole number of conditions coming into place. Okay, that's quite simple, isn't it, really? So um, I'm giving this talk. This didn't just come out of my mind. It came out of a whole number of conditions coming together, some of which is the fact that I became a Buddhist. I, um, I started studying Buddhism, I started practicing Buddhism, I started having thoughts about Buddhism. I, um, someone asked me to give a series of talks, I, gave a, I decided I would, I had to talk to someone else, I'd get dates, I had to have a building to give it in, I had to have an audience to give it to. Masses of conditions need to come together. That's quite simple. And it's easy to understand, isn't it, about... And it's not very challenging, even. But what might be challenging is to think that every thought that you have, every emotion that you have, everything you want to say, every choice you're going to make, is coming about by a whole set of conditions you might just think you're a completely free agent to do everything. But it's not that you don't have free choice, but the very fact that you've got free choice is part of that conditioning factor. And a lot of the choices we make are predictable. They're pretty predictable because we have habits and we have particular ways of thinking, we have certain views, and if one could sort of like determine what all those things are, it's probably pretty easy to predict what most people are going to do, whether they're going to put their left foot forward or their right foot forward. And, but we probably have got a view that our thoughts just suddenly spontaneously erupt into our minds somehow. And our emotions are a bit like that. Yeah? But it's, I find it quite challenging, this actually, to think that all the thoughts I'm having, all the words that are dribbling out my mouth sometimes, and the radio that's going on in my head um, sometimes, is, they're all being, they all come about from a number of conditioning factors. 
And without those factors being there, they wouldn't happen. I wouldn't happen. I wouldn't be here. And I find that quite challenging, really, because it sort of it, it changes the view I have of myself, that I'm so sort of interconnected with everything else around me that's conditioning me all the time. At the moment, I'm feeling a little bit hot, okay? And that's okay, but, you know, I'm being conditioned, so the way I'm going to talk is probably going to be um, conditioned by that. Some of you are smiling at me, and that's conditioning me. I'm feeling more sort of relaxed and uh, can see that some of you are enjoying it. One or two people look very, very serious. That has an effect on me. So, you know, I'm sort of thinking, oh, they're really bored. And, um, I mean, they may just be... It may just be that lang- English isn't their first language and they're ha- translating it. That's what happened in Sweden with an audience. I found them all looked at me really seriously when I talked because I spoke English. And I thought it's the most, oh, it's the most boring talk I'm giving because they're just looking at me. And I discovered afterwards they were having difficulty translating in Swedish. So, you know, everything's conditioning us. And, um, um, and the way we, we behave conditions everything else around us. So that's a very important um, aspect to, to recognise um, with Buddhism. And what the Buddha said, he said that we live in a sort of... And I'll just draw it like, like a sort of elongated circle. We live in a field... Um, which is a sort of gravitational pull towards this condition that we live in, of the, this, the fact that everything is being conditioned. It, you could call it the gravitational pull of the conditioned. Okay. So we're living this world, we're living our life, and in a way it's like I'm not floating off anywhere because I'm being pulled down to the earth because of gravity. Okay. So there's this gravitational field um, that we can't get out of really, we can't go into a world that's unconditioned? Well, not just yet. <laughs> so we're having to accept we live within, within this field. But the Buddha also said um, that there was another sort of gravitational pull that was acting on us, and you'll see probably why I had to say this, um, which was the pull of the unconditioned. So we have to now assume that there is another as it were, it's quite, where language becomes very difficult. There is another condition called the unconditioned. <laughs> but it's um, as though there's some, something that's pulling us or wanting us to make a journey. Otherwise, why would we be here? I mean, I'm sure you could find more interesting things to do than just, you know, you could go and have fun. Um, but you, you've come here to have fun. Or you've come here for some reason. And I would like to suggest one of the reasons you've come here is probably because you are experiencing the gravitational pull of the unconditioned. You're looking for something more in your life than going to the funfair of life is going to give you. So you're already being acted on. And this is where it's slightly complicated because now the unconditioned becomes a condition within your sphere of operation. But let's not bother going there because that will just get us very philosophical and complicated. So you have these two pulls working on us all the time. And um, I mentioned this in my last talk, but we have a whole number of things um, that we're affected by, sort of what you could call regularities in the universe. So we have things like gravity, which is um, what you could call an inorganic um, condition of regularities, like large bodies in our universe move, um, attract, attract smaller bodies. So we're a small body. Fortunately, we're being attracted to a large body called the planet Earth, and we're not falling off. So if that wasn't happening, we would be, wouldn't be here, actually. Um, so there are these regularities. That's an example of a regularity of 
the inorganic condition of gravity. So we're just, you know, everything in the universe seems to be, um, in terms of bodies, works in this way, more or less. Then you have the um, organic uh, regularity. So such things as sunlight on leaves produces photosynthesis, produces um, fuel and and so forth, and, and allows plants to to grow, and this seems to be another t- you know, an example of the organic regularity. You have the um, regularity that you can call um, the animal, which is consciousness. So consciousness is is quite um, mysterious for a start, and um, it's there in very very small forms of life, in some degree or another, and quite complex in the human form. So there's that sort of regularity. It seems as though um, consciousness keeps sort of evolving into more and more complex systems. And we're quite familiar with these things, probably perhaps never thought of about them as regularities. And, like, you know, it's quite an interesting philosophical question. Well, why did they happen to be there? You know, but you can't, that's a question you can't answer. You just have to accept there are certain regularities in the universe. And if you've been to the Buddhist centre before, if you had any contact with Buddhism, or if you were at my previous talk, you would know that in Buddhism there are two more regularities which you can't be quite so sure of, you can't believe in so easily as gravity. With gravity, you know, if I was to throw a cushion to someone, or if I was to say to someone, can you just take care of my wallet, and I, I threw it, I'd have to probably throw it upwards if I didn't want to throw it too hard, because I know it would come downwards. So if I didn't want this man in the front here to have it, which I really wouldn't want him to have it, (laughs) because I know him quite well, um, I'd have to throw it upwards to the people at the back who could catch it, and otherwise it would just fall down into his lap, and you think, oh, great. (laughs) Um, So um, these are sort of regularities. The two that we're not so sure about, probably, and we think, hmm, sounds good, but not not, not, um, sure about that, is one that... um, is the regularity, well, let's deal with the last one first, is the regularity that we're all being, as it were, drawn in a direction of some sort, which we can't quite fully understand rationally what it is. But we know that when we give in to this um, pull, this gentle pull towards the condition, we feel a certain amount of contentment and we're going in the right direction. Okay? So that's the, direct, that's the sort of pull, the regularity of... Uh, you could call it a religious impulse. You know, most religions probably arise out of the same religious impulse as everything, you know, and Buddhism the same. So there's this, this religious impulse which is like moving us as a, a conscious being in a certain direction. There's another um, condition called, um, these are called... These regularities are called niyamas in, in Buddhism. They're not, that f- they're not that familiar in all schools of Buddhism, but in our own Tri Ratna... Um, training. We're actually starting to talk about them more and more uh, recently. And um, this, this other one is called karma. And you probably, if you know anything about Buddhism, you've probably heard the word karma and rebirth. But karma, it just means actions, really. And it's, but it's a bit more complicated than that. It's a bit like when you do something, because you're part of this whole conditioning Sampratitya Samatpada business, you're, whatever you do will have results. So the regularity is is that if you do things really selfishly and really um, unpleasantly to other people, to others, and even to yourself, the results will be that you'll cause suffering 
not only for others, but for yourself. So there's a sort of a moral or ethical um, element to it. And conversely, if you do things that are generous, outward-going, open-hearted, honest, um, the same sort of things that virtually we share with all other religions. It all seems to be part of that religious impulse of not killing, not stealing, not lying, and so forth. Um, but but the, 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 the karma niyama, or this karma regularities, is that if you do something that's life-enhancing, caring, um, caring both about yourself and others, then things will go well for you. So it's a very, very important part of making this journey. In fact, it's the training that most of us have to undergo in order to even make this journey. So that's the preliminary to the talk, and I've got about 25 minutes now to tell you the rest of the talk. But don't worry, we'll have time for questions at the end. And um, what we've been doing in the Tri Ratna um, Buddhist movement over the 40, nearly 50 years, um, 45 years of of its existence, is our teacher, Sangraksha, has been sort of trying to get a clearer um, explanation of the Buddhist message to us, you know, that, that suits us in our modern day and age. And he says that um, in order to make this journey, a number of aspects of our being need to be worked on, need to be brought together. And that's what I really wanted to talk about today. Okay? So the first aspect is, is... Um, you know when you think of yourself do you think you're just one little being or a really big being or do you ever think of yourself like as a community you know a community of beings like you've got a load of selves you know there's a self that wants to go to work and there's a self that because he wants the money and there's a self or it's fulfilled because of the vocation and there's a self that doesn't want to do it yeah? There's a self that wants to do this and a self that wants to do that. And often they're pulling in slightly different directions. So um, sometimes when someone says to us, would you like to go, go out for the evening? Um, some people know immediately because that's what they really want to do. Others have to have a community, community meeting. <laughs> you have to get together with your community of selves and you say, do you want to go out this evening? And one self says, no, I'm a bit tired, you know. And the other self says, oh, it's a bit boring, that person going out. I don't want to have fun with it. And they like, yeah, but it might be good. So that's another self, you know. And, um, and it depends what sort of type of person you are. If you're a sort of more judging, more um, less perceiving sort of person, you'll sort of make a decision quite quickly. Um, but some people can spend, I can spend ages trying to make a decision. And um, I usually associate with people who make decisions for me. <laughs> Life is much easier, I tell you. Even trying to buy an air ticket's difficult because I always think there's a cheaper one I'm going to get if I look around. So that's the first thing. It's what you call the, the aspect or the stage even of integration. You have to bring together into a wholeness this collection of different interests that you have. Okay? And it has to be integrated in the sense that enough of you wants to move in this direction. Is that clear? It's sort of... Maybe you haven't thought of it like that, but you know, a lot of us feel life is, particularly nowadays, is just like so. It's, it seems to be so full of many opportunities, and we can make so many choices. One really wonders how many choices we can make because we're so conditioned. But um, it seems like that we have so many things going on, so many interests. You know, you might be thinking, "Oh, I wonder if anyone sent me a text message just now, and um, did I read anyone's mind then?" <laughs> um, but um, 
something like that may happen. So there's that self who's getting slightly lost or a bit bored with what I'm just saying and has moved on to something else. So integration is a very important aspect, is bringing together into a wholeness and even thinking of yourself as more of a whole community of selves who are now wanting to go together because you've got sort of consensus, enough consensus or enough, um, you know, enough of you wanting to make this journey. And you have to spend quite a bit of time developing that uh, and integrating that side. And sometimes you make the journey without being very integrated, so you sort of get a little way along the path. And you know what happens? The elastic band of another interest pulls you back and you go in the other direction. Okay? So you start making some sort of training in this direction, but you haven't integrated enough. So you sort of think, ah, oh, I think I'll go on holiday. I think I'll go around the world for a few years you know, and do something else. And uh, So that's, that's, that's quite common, that sort of thing happens. The next thing that you need to... So that, that's the, um, the first thing. I might use another... Sorry to, to use a lot of the NBC's paper. Um, but I didn't adjust the flip chart properly, so I have to bend down. People at the back can't see. So that's the integration, first stage. If I spell anything wrong, please tell me. Not easy to be integrated up here. The second thing is that you need to have what you could call positive emotion. Right? This is quite an interesting <coughs> word. What did I say this um, path was about? Hmm? Change. change, it's about change. And what sort of change would you like to be making? Hmm? Radical change, but you could become a tyrant by m making radical changes. So what would be the sort of change that you would like to make? Positive. What is positive change? I'll trust what I'm trying to find out. <laughs> I need some help here. Huh? Become more, more wonderful, right. So that's positive for you, yeah. So what would be more being more wonderful? Like a Buddha. Like a Buddha. And what's a Buddha like? Kind. Kind, yeah, that would be... That's it, kind. What was that, sorry? Wise. Wise, yeah. Generous. Wise. Why would you want to be wise? <clears throat> yeah. Why would you want to know that? To be more, behave better. Better. Are we still coming back to the same yeah. problem? Better. <laughs> Positive. Yeah. Hmm? Reach your potential. Your might, potential might be to be a great violinist or it might be to be a, a great um, hunter or um, a great tyrant. To be free? Free of what? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that would be an aspect of it. Less conditioned. Less conditioned, yeah. Positive emotion. To be happy? Yeah, maybe. Someone said it earlier, and I'll come back because you know, it looks quite fun, this. Yeah. <laughs> Just to realise you're probably more confused than I am. <laughs> um, to accept where you are, who you are. Yeah, and what, why, why is it good to do that? That's right. It's a way of being kind to yourself, isn't it? And you could say that positive emotion, I did say it earlier, but you weren't paying enough attention really, <laughs> is, is all about... Um, being going outwards, you know, it's not by, about self. It's about life-enhancing movement. It's about caring about yourself and others in an open-hearted, 
kindly, generous, honest sort of way. So it's about that. And this word in positive emotions, very interesting, isn't it? Because if you do this, right, what do you get? Positive motion. Yeah. You can't see that, can you? Just taking the ear away. Right? So if you take the ear away from emotion, you get motion. And this is another way of looking at this thing. You could call it skillful intention, because we don't like to use the word good and bad in Buddhism. We, you could use the words good and bad, because what would be good would be moving you on this path towards enlightenment. We call it skillful behaviour, you know, skillful actions, <laughs> skillful thoughts. And, um, but, or positive in the sense of, and I'm defining the term here, positive, what I mean by it, is that it's about being kind, kind to yourself, kind to other people, kind to the environment, because that, that, that benefits life. It's kind to life, really, okay? a fulfilling life. So um, that's the second stage. The third stage is... Um, it's, now I'm going I'm to have to introduce the word spiritual because I'm running out of English terms for this, right? These two are simple. I'm going to call it, instead of just receptivity, which it is, I'm going to call it spiritual um, receptivity. And this is really about being um, receptive to this pull of the unconditioned, which I'm using the word spiritual to represent. All right? So when I say spiritual receptivity, it, I mean it's that you're being aware and sensitive to the fact that you could, there's something, as it were, pulling you. I can't say something because you don't really know what it is, but we run out of language at this point. So. So it's being receptive to the fact that um, you could become Buddha-like or that there is a sort of Buddha nature that you're, you can um, move towards. So it's being receptive to that. Running out of colours here, so i go back to red again. The next one, actually I'll use blue and end up with red. It's more positive. Um, <laughs> next one's called... So what happens when you change? You grow. And what does growth mean? Change. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry? Letting go of things, isn't it? And what's another word for... What's the ultimate letting go? Yeah, okay, so we've got spiritual death here. Right? That represents all the letting go that we're going to have to do in order to change. And the, that's good news. The bad news, you want to hear the bad news? Bad news is not necessarily going to make you happy. <laughs> because you might have to give up the idea of being happy. Because actually making all these changes, integrating yourself... What about the bits that don't want to be happy? All those bits that you're quite happy with being miserable. <laughs> you know, you feel comfortable being miserable, giving yourself a hard time. You have this little voice saying, you're useless, can't do that, and so on. What about that bit? What are you going to do with that bit? Right? That's not going to be happy if you start making yourself happy. So um, it, as soon as you start making yourself change, and, and if, if happiness is what you want, I'm not sure that Buddhism is the best way of going about it. If, if you're trying to be happy by coming here, you might find what you're, you get is, are things that are slightly uncomfortable. If you, can, if you can work with those, probably happiness will be an outcome of that. It's a bit like if you set your goal at being happy, you won't be happy. But if you set your goal at being different, being more you'll probably be happy. Okay? 
And a lot of people make that mistake about Buddhism because they think it's all about the removal of suffering. And if you remove suffering, you're happy. It's not as simple as that. And it's, it's more like if you translate the word happiness as contentment or fulfilment, then yes, that would, that would work. But if you think it's like happy, oh, I'm really feeling happy today. It's a mood, you know, like a happy mood. You may not feel always happy because if you decide to get up in the morning and meditate because you think that's going to help you change, that's a really nice happy thought you have in the evening. But when it's 7 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning the alarm goes and you think, oh, I'm going to get up and meditate, you don't really feel very happy about it until you, you, know, you manage to change enough to feel happy about it. So what comes after death? Big mystery, that, isn't it? Well, we don't really know um, fully, but um, we could say if death is just representing change, um, that when we die, and we're not really dead, let's say, we're just dying in this moment, what we were, what we get is a new... Yeah, a new me, in, in a way. So you get a sort of... Excuse me, turn my back to you here, but difficult to write. You get a spiritual, you could call a rebirth, because you're born again as a slightly different person to the one you were. So Buddhism is all about letting go, and it changes about that, isn't it? It's about letting go, moving on, and becoming different. All right, leave those there. Okay, now I've got ten minutes left um, to tell you how to do it. (laughs) All right, the first one, that being integrated, you have to develop something that we call in Buddhism mindfulness. This is well known in the health service now. Really glad it is because, you know, breathworks, we use that to get people to employ us to teach them mindfulness to help them with their pain conditions and things. But you use mindfulness, which is a form of awareness, to know what's going on. So when you've decided, um, oh, it also in- involves a certain degree of commitment. You have to have enough of you integrated to start with to decide you're going to go on this journey. So you have to be a bit committed to the journey. You might not be fully committed because you're not quite sure. yet. And, and anyway, I've already told you, you've got to test it out, right? So you don't want to be fully sure. So you're going to test it out. But you need a, some degree of commitment to start. Right? So y- you get going, and then you have to be mindful that when you do something... That isn't going to help you go forward. It's going to actually go in the other direction. You have to then make a conscious decision what to do. That's what the good thing about mindfulness is. It gives you choice. So you can choose to carry on on the journey or you can decide to go out and go to the fun fair of life and have fun and go round and round and merry-go-rounds. So mindfulness is, 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 in fact, through all this, is absolutely necessary. Awareness of what you're doing. Sometimes you have to have a bit of a break because being aware of what you're doing all the time is really hard. You make all these decisions and, and that involves a different way of thinking. Usually you just think by what's called intuitive thinking. You, know, you just think, what do I want to do now? And you just go and do it. Whereas this will involve you thinking a little bit, thinking, what do I want to do now? I'd like to do that. Mm, maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't do that today. Yeah? So you, you have to involve... And, and that requires effort... An effort is something we don't usually want to make, so Buddhism does require you... An integration will require you making an effort. Um, we, ha- we teach a, um, a meditation that's very, very helpful for this um, called the Mindfulness of Breathing, which is what you'll get taught if you come to the Buddhist Centre here to learn meditation. It's the very, very first thing we'll teach you because we believe it has an integrating effect. For instance, a lot of people do not know their, 
how do I say this? Um, a lot of people um, are not aware that they are not their thoughts. Right? So a lot of people just associate with thinking as part of them. But actually, if you sit and watch your breath, for instance, which is the mindfulness of breathing, you begin to realise you have thoughts. And your thoughts are not exactly you. There's like sort of things like energy, like words come towards you. And they're not actually you because you can let them go. And you can watch them coming and going. And this is what you do when you train in mindfulness meditation and mindfulness of breathing. So you realise you're not your thoughts, which is great because that means you can let the ones that you don't want to have go and think about the ones you do want to have. And it works the same with emotions. Emotions just are conditioned factors that come. You can experience them. You don't have to be taken over by them. You don't have to become the angry person you thought you were. Because you can just think, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just experiencing anger now, just irritation or boredom. And you just think, oh well, and just watch it. And that's a way of integrating yourself. Okay, so that's how you... There are lots of other things you do. You do yoga, go artistic pursuits, anything that helps you to concentrate but with awareness, awareness of what's going on in your mind, in your, your, um, your thoughts, your feelings. So it's not just distractions like, um, I have to be careful what examples I give here, but you know, say, say like rock climbing, you know, I imagine rock climbing decre- requires an incredible degree of concentration and certain amount of integration, because um, when you're halfway up, you want to get to the top rather than just hang around. So it involves commitment, but it probably doesn't involve you having to be aware of how you're feeling. In fact, probably how you're feeling isn't a good idea to be aware when you're on the mid-face of the eiger. And uh, you might be feeling cold and miserable. Best not to worry too much about it. Integration. Positive emotion. So how do you develop positive emotion? Well, this really is now a training, all right, in some ways. One of the trainings is that you decide, okay, positive emotion is about being kind. So I'm going to train myself in being kind. So where can I be kind? Well, you could go downstairs and wash all the cups up. That would be an act of kindness, wouldn't it? Someone might need... I wouldn't mind a cup of tea, actually. But anyway, let's not worry about that now. But someone could get me one. That would be kind. You could... Around you, there are all these sort of opportunities of being kind all the time. It's just that sometimes we're a little bit sort of focused on ourselves, And we're not even being kind to ourselves. And I, I mentioned, I think, in my last talk about how um, certainly with non-violent communication, I I love love this image of having this animal sitting on my shoulder called the um, jackal, and it's the the critical mind. You're useless. You You failed again. This isn't really a very good talk you're giving, isn't it? People are not smiling so much now. You are, actually. But they're probably realising, because it's quarter two now, it's going to shut up soon. And uh, and so it's that way of being self-denigrating. If I had those thoughts about you... And about me, that would be like the jackal speaking. Do you, are you familiar, familiar with that? Do you know? Do you know that little animal sits there? It's always giving you a critical time. Positive emotion is about motion. Send it on holiday, right? So um, the jackal can have a holiday. You don't have to be self-critical. Um, but it's having the intention, even if you don't feel kind. So you're not going to always wait until you feel kind to be kind, because that's not how you're going to develop kindness, is it? You need to develop kindness when you're feeling unkind. You need to think, okay, I feel really tight and you know, unkind today, so let me do something kind. And that will actually change you if you do that. So it's a sort of training in that way. Right? Do you get the, get the idea? So I can move on. Um, another way of doing it is, um, 
this is a really good way, and this is an easy way, right? And this is what we specialise in in our tree ratna um, movement. This is we we do this to make it easy for everyone. Do you know what it is? Friendship. Friendship. So what is friendship? It's not just friendship, actually. It's friendship. It's friendship about being friendly with people who are positive. Because you could be friendly with people that are really miserable. And that, what effect would that have on you? Probably make you feel really miserable. So if you, if you associate with people who are confident, um, fairly free of anxiety, and um, feel as though they've got a sort of direction, it will have an effect on you. And if the direction is the direction you want to go in, it will have a very positive effect on you. So positive emotion can easily be developed by association with positive people. And positive people here means a certain type of positivity, not just, ha-ha, being positive today, but the positivity that comes with the idea of motion in a certain direction. All right. You got that? Okay. You can also do another meditation, which you'll get taught on a beginner's or a follow-up course. I can't quite remember how we do it now. Um, called the uh, Meditation on Loving-Kindness or Metabhavana. And that is about being aware of yourself, feeling you know, kindly towards yourself, or at least having an intention of feeling kindly to yourself, because you may not be feeling kindly to yourself, wishing yourself well, and then thinking about others, friends, neutral people, people you don't like, and even everyone. And because you're not just so over-focused on your um, miserable, down, jackal side you're actually starting to focus on the positive side of you and what's positive in other people and even the people that are neutral to you and uh, even the people you don't like, they've got their positive qualities too, so you start focusing on those and you realise that everyone's, you know, we're all pretty much the same really, aren't we? You know, we're all human beings, we all want to avoid suffering, we all basically want to be happy and we want to be fulfilled and, and so on in some way. Some people got very strange ways of going about doing that, but... Um, when we think in that way, it can actually change our perspective on, on all sorts of people. So that's another way of um, developing um, positive emotion association with other people. I'm going to move on to spiritual death. Now, uh, it's a very complicated area here, but um, one of the things, and I just really want to talk about one thing here, which you could practice quite easily. Challenging. It's very, very challenging, this one. It's, I find this one the most challenging. This one I'm really working hard on, right? It's views. All right? Views are what define you, or define us. Right? We have views. Yeah. Views and opinions. Very often our views are actually no more than opinions. And we can change fairly. But what do we do with some of our views? Have you noticed, like, you're having a bit of a discussion? People have these views and opinions I've discovered about football. You know, like, if you're a particular... Like, if you're a Manchester United supporter, you know, you really really into Manchester, you think they're the best team in the world, that's a view. They may be, they may not be, but you think they are, that's your view. You might be talking to a City um, f fan who thinks their team, the City's the best in the world. You've got two views now. And what happens when you get two people with really strong views having a discussion about their views? Have you ever noticed this? You get emotional, don't you? People get really emotional. And... Um, and it's quite funny sometimes if you're it's one of I used to, I changed but I used to do this almost as a sort of um, a form of recreation <laughs> and if you're a little bit perceptive and you say something um, and you notice you get a rise out of someone it's like pressing a button you know you get a little bit of a rise out of them because you know they're a Manchester United fan and you just sort of say well City did very well last night didn't they <laughs> 
and um, you get this little rise out of them. And you can see that it's like the hairs bristle upwards. And um, you, you know, if you if you got that sort of perverted sort of way of having fun, you could just. I do it actually for a reason because I want people to know they've got views and they're emotionally involved in their views. Is my rationalisation. Um, but um, the main thing is not worrying about other people's views. The main thing is worry about your views. Right. So where you could work is that time when someone mentions presses one of your buttons. Right. It might be. It might be politics, it might be environmental issues. You know, you know if, you, if, you're, if you're an environmentalist and someone says, I really like driving around in a big car, you know, and you think, well, I've really got to have a talk to them about that. And you can feel yourself getting emotional. You've got emotional investment in that, and it's defining you. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with views. You know, it, there are certain views to hold. In fact, you have to have views as a Buddhist. You have to have what we call right views, views that, of how to move along a path. It's not that views are wrong, it's the attachment to views that's difficult. The fact that you won't even let go of your view. Like the view of death. You know, if you've got the view of death, that when I'm dead, nothing else ever happens, and I said to you, well, I, I actually think that your consciousness continues, and you say, no way. You're, you're really defining your view. I could be fanatical and say, it absolutely does. You know, neither of us can prove it, but we can get really emotional. And uh, people go to war because of their views, which neither of them can prove. And um, it's sort of a strange sort of perversion of humanity that we're, we're so attached to our views. So one simple way of working on, on spiritual death is to let go, is to be aware of when you're getting that sort of emotional moment do you know what i'm talking about you know so you, you when you've got that emotional moment you can have bring mindfulness in and think attachment to my views okay. and um you you know it's quite interesting because usually you're so emotional you can't you don't even want to be mindful about it you know you just want to fight about your views <laughs> but afterwards when you're reflecting on it and you're thinking well that wasn't really a very nice pleasant conversation you say yeah attachment to my views, see what they do to me. So spiritual death really is about letting go of the attachment to, to things, but views is a particular pernicious or difficult thing to let go of. What happens when you let go of those views? Hmm? You're in a vacuum. <laughs> yeah, you're liberated, you're in a vacuum, there's nothing there, there's nothing to hold you, you're floating around, you're liberated, right? And that's what it often feels like. When you let go of the attachment of your views, you might still be, you know, really want to fight for a particular view. Not, I don't mean literally fight, but, you know, sort of write letters to politicians and things to make people's conditions better. You might have a view that the poor need to have more resources and so on. And that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that view. But, um, and it's good to have some emotional involvement in it. But it's going to cause you a lot of suffering if you're not really going to listen to other people and not take them seriously as human beings because they've got a different view. But when you can do that, you feel freedom. You feel that, well, first of all, no one can press your buttons. Mm. You know, think how wonderful it would be if, if you didn't have buttons to be pressed. And you've only got buttons to be pressed because of your views. You're manufacturing the buttons. You're, you're, you've got them there. You're maintaining them, you know, polishing them up so people can press them. And then, then when people press them, you think, why, well, get off, you know, they're pressing a button. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the buttons there for people to press. You know, it's sort of like a strange thing to do. So if you didn't have any buttons, think how free you would be, how wonderful that would be. And that would be more Buddha-like, if you like. It's a freedom of buttons. Not necessarily that you don't have views, but you do that. 
And the last um, thing to develop is the receptivity, as it were, to this pull of this is the right direction to go in. It's, it's difficult to talk about this one because it, it, you end up with think words like God if you're not careful, you know, sort of like, well, there's God, you know, you just got to move towards God. Well, Buddhists don't believe in God, like the creator God. And it, uh, it doesn't certainly, it's not that Buddhists don't believe in anything, it's just that we don't believe that the world was created by a being called God. Um, because a Buddhist would even say, how did, how did you even manage to create that? You know, it's sort of, and what a, you know, did you do a good job on it? It doesn't seem like it was a great job, you know, when you think about it. So it's, it's like we haven't got a God in, th- in things, and, um, but it is opening yourself up to this, you know, um, way of doing it. And the way you do that is to, again, associate with others, discuss it, talk about things, um, listen to talks like this, and uh, more than anything is to sit still. And we have another meditation called Just Sitting, where you just sit and you experience integration, positive emotion, letting go of views, for instance, and the liberation that comes with that, and then you have um, freedom. And if you do all that, you'll have radical change. And you'll also (laughs) learn how to be free.